Emotional Cripples is an entertainment podcast which contains frank discussions about mental health. Listener caution is advised. Hello and welcome to episode three of Emotional Cripples, a podcast about male mental health. Uh, I'm Andrew Lowe. I'm Tim Tucker. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to Matthew Therese, who works at the Mental Health Partnership for the National Health Service. Um, He's going to be talking about his work with people who are diagnosed as autistic or Asperger's syndrome on that spectrum. Um, A really interesting chat. It's not just relevant to people with that condition. It's also relevant to everyone because obviously people who who are on the spectrum of autism and Asperger's do have... Um, a higher incidence of mental health issues. So he talks about how to manage that, and that's this kind of advice that's relevant to all of us, I think. He talks about the misconceptions about autism. It's not just like Rayman, where you know you've got somebody you can take to the casino and win you lots of money because of their amazing mathematical skills. Um, <laughs> mostly, people on the spectrum, Asperger's and autism, have issues with the specifics of situations and what the rules are and how things work. And yeah, and that- often that's very difficult to read in messy human human kind of uh, lots of humans wandering around environments. And yeah, it can be really stressful. And, and actually, I'm working with Matthew at the moment on trying to get more people with autism into the workplace because those skills are really essential for business. But only 17% of people who are diagnosed with autism are actually employed, which is mm. shocking. Mm. And that's because, we've talked about this a lot, haven't we, Andy, where um, you know, the world isn't prepared to accommodate any neurodiversity like that. Yeah. So, but you know, people with autism tend to speak honestly and openly without um, any regard to the way people might respond to that, and that can cause problems in the workplace, for example. Yeah, well, it's empathy, isn't it? I think yeah. there's, there's obviously... We're back to this thing again, Tim, aren't we? Normal, normal mm. being the problem. Yeah. This is going to keep coming up. And it's yeah. it's the idea that um, unless you are you you have a response, a highly empathic response, then you're yeah. abnormal. Instead yeah. of, um, you know, finding ways to accommodate the other, abil- the other skills and the other kind of positives about... Um, if mm. you have that condition, so you're seeing it as a, as a problem, as something to manage, you know, rather than something that you can incorporate, and uh, that's the kind of work that he does. Definitely, and um, just just on that, it's so important that people understand neurodiversity and how other people behave and think and why. Because, for example, it's not the case that autistic people aren't empathetic; they just take longer to to recognise signals. Mm. So it's difficult for people on the spectrum to read body language, for example. So you can say, I'm fine, like that, and somebody would just read that as, oh, they're okay then. Whereas, you know, we, people who aren't on the spectrum, tend to read the body signals more clearly. When they do realise there's something wrong, they would be highly empathetic. And this is to distinguish it from, say, sociopathy, where there is no empathy at all. Um, And sometimes people can misread that and think you're not empathetic when actually it's just difficulty in reading that empathy if that makes sense yeah it's I just think that understanding is important it's sort of as though the signal isn't quite so clear yeah as it is with people who don't have that condition mm. and um as you're saying what does the indian two with matthew talks about is how how to incorporate the kind of positives the other there are lots of positives and and how to yeah. incorporate them into into the workplace and obviously the workplace is stressful in terms you know yeah. people talk about office politics and yeah. you know office politics being a team it's, player, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty hellish anyway, that, yeah. that idea that um, you've got to be thrown together with a group of people and work them out and read them mm. minute by minute 
you know, and try and sort of make your make your your way and in, in all of that mm. that noise. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously not an ideal environment for somebody who has that condition. But yeah. there are other perhaps more ideal situations that we're missing out on. Yeah. You know, by the seeing whole, it as a problem. Yeah, and the whole of society would benefit from that. This week, I've had a bad week, to be honest, I'd yeah. say. And um, this isn't my time of year, really. Yeah. And so I think it's, I find it difficult to, I find it difficult with that little kind of snatch of daylight, you know, in between the darkness. Yeah. It seems like a brief sort of flash rather than a, oh, it's the day. It just seems like the darkness yeah, is, is approaching me every, every moment. It's very early. Yeah, and even during the day, it's often cloudy. Yeah, and it's not my time of year. I think that, that doesn't help. I'm not just saying... Uh, I'm not fobbing off the way I'm feeling by saying it's just just the weather, you know. It mm. definitely doesn't help, though. And yeah, you know, we've we've talked about lots of coping strategies, medication, mm. you know, talking therapy, recognizing and reframing your triggers, um, yeah. accepting that there's no overall state of general happiness. Uh, but this week, I found a new one, oh, yeah, <laughs> and great. it's pretending to be a cowboy. Um, <laughs> there's a guy. It's well, a game called Red Dead Redemption 2, oh, right, and it's yeah. by Rockstar Games, who did the Grand Theft Auto series. Um, it's a huge open-world game, and it was apparently set in the Old West, in the Wild, Wild West, I call it, and, and set sort of 1899 towards the end of the real, as industrialised America is starting to kind of seep over the old way of life and stuff, and these kind of people are at the end of their lifestyle sort of. Mm. They're, they're a dying breed the kind of cowboys and the campfires and the, yeah. um, and uh, it's incredible It's it was apparently worked on by more than 2,000 people in about 8 studios it took them 8 years to mm. kind of make this game and it's not just you know long long gone are the days where you know you'd have a couple of people 2 or 3 people producing a game it would take them a few months or something this is you know epic in just every sense of the word yeah. and what I find satisfying about it what's helping me about this mentally with this game is that it is escapist and because the world is so immersive and it's so utterly convincing as a as a, an alternate world that um it's almost like a sort of a virtual reality uh sort of dopamine hit wow. that i can just power down the real world um and just zone into this new world this this kind of completely mm. you know convincing alternative world it's um, sounds great i yeah i i'm going to ask the dullest question of all about it do you have to what's have your high record? score no <laughs> do you have to have played the first one <laughs> no you don't no you don't have to play the first one no. um, it's it's just totally convincing and it's that classic thing we've talked about of make me care you have to care about the characters yeah and you you are an outlaw basically you play a member of a gang who is on the run at all times, making camp, um, and then you know something will happen, and you'll have to move to another part of the map. And there's like sort of twenty or thirty of you in this kind of ragtag band of sort of outlaws, really. And um, and so you know you don't really start with a lot of a lot of weapons. You know you're not you don't really build up to sort of tool yourself up to some sort of super cowboy or anything. Mm-hmm. You just have to make your way in this world and get by. Right. Um, you get a horse, and you sort of have to treat your horse well, and uh, you know the physic, the look of it visually, it's it's incredibly photorealistic. And so all mm. these rich environments, it's incredible weather system, um, and it's just utterly convincing. And I found it. I'm finding it. I'm, a couple of people I've spoken to have sort of seem to be implying the same that they're finding it 
um, uh, really helpful really? to sort of balance themselves as a bit of an escape, you know, as a kind of mental... Do you think that's kind of, um, this particular game or gaming in general, good immersive gaming in general, that's useful? Cause, um, I suppose it could apply to gaming in general, but I find, I think this game just has a sort of quality where you're not really pushed to um, a sort of a rapid progression you're it's more meditative it's more oh, um yeah and and the the travel you're on a horse you've got to travel a long way and at first you just have to settle into the pace the pace of the game because today everyone's used to kind of things how do we speed this up how do we get this done quicker mm. um and i think that's why i find it such a respite because i find it it's a respite from that from that kind of oh. real world in, yeah. you know impulse to kind of get things done quickly and move on and get on to the next thing yeah. and what this game is all about it's not about that it's about um just living in the world and just making little tiny bits of progress every time right. every time you play and yeah. um i just find it really satisfying and really you know meditative yeah. so what have you been up to i've been the, the the Beatles are a big passion of mine. Mm. I've been uh, a lifelong fan ever since I was a kid, and uh, they've just released the 50th anniversary edition of the White Album. I know Andy, you're also a fan, yeah. and um, it was just glorious reimmersing myself in mm. that um, music. For me, I'm a musician. You're a musician, Andy. We um, we both get a lot from that. I I certainly find it's huge. If you can either play, listen to, enjoy music massive relief to to um any anxiety or depression that i'm feeling i got i got totally geeked up about um uh, the white album again and this new edition's got like 100 odd tracks on it it's yeah. amazing um outtakes acoustic demos and some of those songs actually address some of the issues that i'm going through that's that's one direct thing but i think just um that particular album is very diverse it's is their most it's a messy you know hodgepodge of an album in some ways but it's also great to just revel in all the corners of it it was going to be called the doll's house because it's like opening different doors and finding unusual different things mm. you know there's pastiche of 20s music there's jazz there's heavy metal prototypes mm. there's all sorts of blues it's, it's just a great wallow type listen. it's also um, i find a lot of my favorite albums tend to be i don't know what this says about me but i find a lot of my favorite albums tend to be things where the band is sort of falling apart or on the at the beginning of falling apart yeah. or so that's why I like Dogma yeah. Star by Suede and The Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers and they're, they're kind of they're right. sort of albums The Tension yeah Loveless yeah. by My Bloody Valentine is my favourite album of all time and I think yeah. they're sort of there's the something about maybe the, the the kind of circumstances of their creation that feeds into the music yeah. and I realise this is a bit of a cliche the idea of suffering for your art and you, you know you create better art but I just right. think there's yeah. something about yeah. Those albums, and the White Album is one of those, isn't it, where the band are sl starting to kind of break off into their own directions. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah. You... I mean, it's it's been said, Paul's, Paul McCartney has said that he was going through a nervous breakdown mm. at least soon after that when they started to break down. So, you know, you can sort of feel that mental language, can't you? In, yeah. Not just in the songs, but in the way they sing them, the, the, how we talk about the moaning at the end of my, <laughs> my guitar. But I can do without that, really, to be <laughs> <laughs> the orgasmic moaning at the, the end of "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" is a, is a it's a bit disturbing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but there's also the howling from John during Revolution Nine. I think he was on heroin at the time, so you know they're having problems. It's, it's sort of you know the, the, they're the most successful band in history at this yeah. point, and, uh, and they're, they're still, still really young, aren't they? As well, that's the thing you forget about the Beatles. Yeah, you forget that 
the amount yeah. of success they had and how incredibly prolific they were in such a short period of time. Mm. Um, and yeah. they're still... 28, I think. They're still in their 20s. Like, yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, to have that, to have all of that at your feet. And, you know, yeah. so we're talking about mental health here, obviously, but the mm. idea that... that um, how would you sort of um, adjust your, your yourself, you know, in that, and it, that madness around you where people are just giving you what you want, when you want it? Um, being saying yes to whatever you decide. Although I remember reading the thing with Dave, Dave Gahan from Depeche Mode where he said that during the time of the Music for the Masses tour where they were just enormous and they were, in, they were doing their tour of the States and he just said it was terrifying that they mm. could just ask for something and whatever it it was like a challenge to think of how outlandish a thing they could ask for to see if see if they could get it and they always would be able to get it and it was just like terrifying to be in that kind of world where you're sort of like Mm. a god in the world yeah and there's nothing that you can't actually for for the rest of us it might be a warning because you you always i um spent a lot of time as a musician in my early years trying to make it in music but actually, you know, you hear a lot of stories of people making it, not being happier, not only not being happier, but being much, much unhappier. Um, so, yeah. you know, that all that anguish, it certainly doesn't solve anything. <laughs> it may make buying shoes yeah. easier or whatever. Um, yeah, you're still yourself, aren't you? Yeah. You're still still stuck with yourself and your own impulses and, your, you know, your yeah. your mind is still the same, even though you can uh, get a few more ivory, ivory back stretches or whatever. Yeah. So, so it was good relief to listen to that. And um, whether you're into the Beatles or not, I find it hard that people say they're not into the Beatles. That, that perplexes me because there's so much diversity. There must yeah. be something you like. They're dead to you. Yeah, they're dead to me, yeah. Um, but that's a great, one of the best reissues in a long time, actually, just for the revelations and the diversity of it. Um, I'm sat here with Matthew Therese. Therese. Matthew, you've worked in autism for some time. Can you just talk a bit about what you, what your experience is, uh, you know, what your roles are and uh, around that? Yeah, of course. Um, so my background is working as a support worker. I work for a, a series of different organisations as a support worker in learning disability services, residential care homes uh, for people with learning disabilities and challenging behaviour, and a lot of people within those services had autism and then took a job. Um, with the National Autistic Society and the Low Secure Hospital um, right. and working with people with autism who were detained under the Mental Health Act um, some of whom had committed quite serious offences I was involved in setting up a specialist diagnostic service for adults with autism in Bristol who, who don't have learning disabilities so now my current role is the training and liaison lead for that service cool. so I'm the mouthpiece for the team essentially and excellent and talk to everyone anyone who listen about <laughs> autism well I'm listening so can you just give a few words about how but how would you define it and how would you uh, put it into perspective for people perhaps who haven't got that in mind so my definition if you like is, yeah. it's a neurodevelopmental condition um, it's something that people were born with and, and have for their whole life. You can't catch autism. Right. Um, um, but to get a diagnosis, you've got to be perceived to have lifelong pervasive difficulties affecting all areas in your life. So when we're diagnosing people in, in the NHS or in any diagnostic service for that matter, um, with regards to communication and interaction, we're talking about things like People having a huge amount of difficulty processing the non-verbal parts of communication, yeah. um, taking communication literally because of the difficulties with non-verbal cues. Right. So and like body language and facial expressions. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. And, it, and, it, and with regards to that, it's kind of 
intelligence over intuition for a lot of people with autism. Whereas, yeah. whereas, whereas most people will process all of the body language and tone of voice, will do all of that subconsciously, yeah. intuitively, behind the scenes, and that leads us to be able to work out how other people are thinking and feeling, yeah. um, um, which is really tricky in British culture. Yeah. Um, I think this is probably one of the trickiest societies to navigate if you've got autism. If you're honest and logical, and you're trying to follow a British set of social rules <laughs> and, and the way people communicate, we it's don't say life. what we mean. We say everything but what we mean and use yeah. a load of metaphor and irony and sarcasm to describe things rather than just skipping to the end and saying it. Yeah. So super tricky if you're struggling to process the non-verbal yeah. views. You know, we Absolutely. say we're fine when we're not fine. Yeah. Um, and use our, you know, our sarcastic body language and eye contact to, yeah. to, to communicate. Um, um, what we're what we're feeling essentially, and, and people with autism will find that intrinsically difficult to navigate, yeah. um, because of this sort of lack of social intuition, if you like. People do tend to say things like, "Oh, you're on the spectrum," and you know, people will throw that out to someone, or they'll say something yeah. like, "Oh, well, we're all on the spectrum." Yeah. And something else I picked up from you is that that's not necessarily the case. Well, no. it's certainly not the case that everybody's on the spectrum. No, no, lots of people can relate to certain aspects of autism <laughs> or traits of autism, if you like. Um, mm. but, but the time that we're at now is an interesting time because there's all sorts of awareness raising going on, which is fantastic. Mm. But what it's kind of led to is a dilution of autism. Yeah. And, and now we're at a point where we might be starting to talk about the overdiagnosis of autism rather than the underdiagnosis right. of autism. Okay. Um, because so many people, every time there's a documentary on the TV, the National Autistic Society website crashes, I think, and, and yeah. we're hammered with a new set of referrals. Um, and, and I've even heard it in, in the pub, you know? It's almost yeah. like a slang term yeah. for anyone who's a bit socially awkward all of a sudden. Yeah. And, and mm. this you know, this whole everybody's on the spectrum thing. Um, a lot of people with autism are really annoyed about this. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the, the autism diagnosis is, is essentially a collection of behaviours um, and, and it's a, a lot of the stuff are things that people can relate to or experience yeah. at times. So only yeah. when you put all of these things together, every minute of every day for the whole of a person's life, then we're talking about autism. Most men think they're on the spectrum somewhere. Well, there's they? a load of stuff around that. Um, mm. People describing it as the extreme male brain and things like that. And, yeah. And there's a lot of discussion at the moment around the diagnostic process and diagnostic tools excluding females from that process. Right. Because the diagnostic criteria, a lot of people think it essentially describes a man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, that's, that's, you know, every time I do a talk... Um, there'll often be a bunch of people diagnosing their husbands or their, their really? sons and what we see is um, there's a lot of understanding that still needs to be done around, around females with autism and we diagnose a lot of women with autism in our service um, um, but but there just seems to be more prevalence in males than females. Is that that's a fact? Is it? Do, do you it's, it? it's speculation, and there's right. a lot of debate and discussion oh, okay. about this at the moment. It's quite it's yeah. a hot topic at the moment. Oh, um, is it right? Um, but statistically, would you say more men get diagnosed? Yeah, there's definitely more men with a diagnosis than female. There's okay. diagnostic ratios that range from sort of four to one to sixteen to one male right. to female swings. It's not a mental health issue, is it? It's a condition. So the the kind of angle I suppose we want to come at here is that it can of course lead to mental health issues or you often see I don't want to put words in that but would you yeah. as a question would you often see mental health issues occurring in people with that 
condition and diagnosis? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so on its own, autism is not a learning disability. It's not a mental health problem. But we see higher rates of mental health problems in people with autism than in the general population. Yeah. It's usually um, anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder right. tied to the anxiety, yeah. um, um, which I'll come back to in a second because yeah. OCD and autism often get jumbled up when we start talking about routine type behavior, ritualistic um, type behavior. Um, but they, they can be differentiated. Right. Um, um, also, uh, low mood and depression. Um, yeah. But you know, it makes total sense that, that people experience higher rates of anxiety and, and depression, unfortunately, because it's not an autism-friendly world. Yeah. And, and what a lot of people describe is I've felt different to other people my whole life. I've been treated differently by other people, and, and often people have been excluded or bu- experienced a lot of bullying at school, things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and if, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people still live with their parents well into adulthood. Mm. Um, so being kind of isolated from society or, or, or not having a good experience of going through school can obviously yeah. lead to feeling anxious and feeling low in mood, especially mm-hmm. if you're really smart. Now, I mean, what's interesting actually, just to pick up, because one of the themes we've started to explore through the interviews we're doing is what is normal? I mean, you know, we, we talk about people having an abnormal condition, but the, the deeper you dig with most people, you'll find something that yeah. is troubling, depressed, anxious, as, you know, whether it's diagnosed or not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, lots of people will say there's no such thing as normal. Mm. Um, we've made it okay to talk about mental health. Yeah. Um, but and mental health is vague in itself. You know, it's just an umbrella term um, that is sort yeah. of all-encompassing umbrella term. You know, how's your mental health? Well, that's... Yeah. For people that work in mental health, they're like, what do you mean by that? You know, <laughs> yeah, are we talking about anxiety, depression, psychosis? Yeah. What, what are we actually referring yeah. to there? Yeah. Um, but, but we've kind of made it okay to talk about it now, yeah. which is fantastic and really important. Mm. Um, but the floodgates are open. Right. And, and, you know, yeah. I work in a mental health trust. It's really hard to get into secondary mental health services now. The, the threshold is super high. Um, because so many people need support and, and yeah. even we're talking therapy services the sort of low level mental health services um, you know the, in, in Bristol it would be sort of Bristol Wellbeing Therapies or someone like that yeah. it's CBT services yeah. um, they're massively swamped with, because right. people can self-refer um, um, they're hugely swamped but I think it's just a representation of where we're at in society yeah. and, and the pressures of the modern world and the confusing conflicting messages that we're all pumped full of from an early age um, and and the role of social media for young people growing up and, and and things like that all lead to this current state that we're in yeah. where we kind of see society kind of cracking at the seams a little bit people cannot cope with this this confusing mess of a world that we've kind of created um, you know with politics religion and the environment just on its own there's all sorts of conflicting messages going on yeah. and, and, and you know how you're brought up who's around you what information you've been given access to what your education is like will all feed into to all of this I've had dealings with people who are smart and again I don't want to be the one who diagnoses anybody but I suspect has some of those traits who can be quite blunt with you if you're 
not as sharp as them. Do you know yep. what I mean? Things like that, where, you, where they'll say, well, that's a stupid suggestion, and, and they don't read your disappointment as you, as you're yeah, giving yeah. That, you know, that can lead to all kinds of exclusion as well. Yeah, it? absolutely, because you know. we like to think that, you know, a lot of people describe being excluded by peers at school, mm. and we like to think that doesn't happen so much in adulthood, but of course it does. Yeah. And if, if your face doesn't fit, or if you're abrupt, or, or people that think yeah. you're being blunt or overly assertive or insensitive yeah yeah and that comes from you know all the communication difficulties yeah if you've got an intrinsic difficulty working out what someone else is thinking or feeling and you're yeah. very logical and you're very honest then you can quite easily upset someone because yeah. the rest of society again this is what I meant about British culture we yeah. tell people what we think each other want to hear rather than the truth and then someone with autism rocks up and just answers the question honestly and gets told they're being rude yeah. you know and yeah. I find that hugely frustrating yeah, and, and you would, wouldn't you, if you were that person? Yeah, like, yeah. What am I supposed to say? It confuses the hell out of so many people on this spectrum. Like, you asked me a question and I answered it honestly, and now yeah. I'm rude. Yeah, you know, that's and, right, yeah. and you know, this is a lot of stuff that people come and talk to us about. You know, right? Yeah. Um, but, but I've started thinking in social situations. I'm thinking, right, what would someone with autism say? They'd say the truth. So you can say that sensitively, yeah, but honestly, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's what we're, that's what I try and promote. Yeah, is that it's not someone being polite; they're just answering the question. Yeah. And, and if it's about efficiency, let's think about it in terms of efficiency. Efficiency yeah. of communication. Mm. People with autism are really precise with their use of language. That's where the literal stuff comes from. Yeah, that's yeah. just precision. Mm. Um, and 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 that might come across a certain way to someone. Um, but it's about being able to understand where a person's actually coming from, yeah. recognizing that they're not necessarily intending to cause offence. It's no. just about getting the thing done in the most efficient way possible yeah um and it is, it is, I mean, I've sensed from you a, a kind of belief that that's a, almost leading to a better world. <laughs> you know, that if we could communicate honestly and openly and with sensitivity, actually that's going to help help communication all around. Yeah, but really. it probably ties into the reason that you're doing this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Because historically, you know, guys have been struggling mm. to talk about mental yes, health and we'll say we're fine when we're not fine. Have you got any advice for, for anyone in any of those positions of how they could approach making the world a better place for themselves mentally? Well, yeah, I suppose if, if people are out there that, that suspect that they might be on the spectrum or might have autism um, and, and want to explore that further, I would suggest looking up the diagnostic criteria and seeing how much of it you actually relate to. And can you find that anywhere specifically? Is there a website that you'd recommend? or? Um... I think there's, there's a lot of information on the National Autistic Society's website okay. for, for all we'll sorts, for, for, for people with autism, for families of people with autism, for professionals. That's always a good starting point. Um, but I think the first point of contact is usually the GP. Right. Um, and, and this will be totally variable depending on where you live in the country. Yeah. Um, um, but for, the, for, for most diagnostic services, it will be a referral from a GP. Right. Um, um, like I said earlier, we don't accept self-referrals. Um, yeah. but, but most GPs in the area will know who we are now. Yeah. And, and, and so that's the main route into to diagnosis. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. And I think it's brilliant to be able to be talking about this in this context and, and super important to get the right messages out to people. What's really interesting to me about talking to Matthew about um, autism is that issue we've talked about before, you and I, um, which he really picked up on, that how do you set a baseline for normal mental health? I mean, obviously, yeah. autism isn't a mental health issue, but... Um, you know, it's a, a condition that people are born with. You can't cure it. 
Um, mm. But it does lead to depression and anxiety. Society isn't built for people who are um, who are brutally honest and open and don't um, you know don't read body language so well and so on. Mm. Um, and actually, what really interested me is a it's kind of overlaps with my job actually because one of the things I do or have done is like web design where if you, if you design a website for people who are, um, who have learning disabilities or, um, you know, other things, then actually it improves everyone. It improves the experience for everyone. Mm. And what Matthew said was the same with autism. If you, if you can improve the workplace, improve the way you communicate with people, um, if you can improve that for autistic people, it's actually a benefit to everyone in society it's about knowing what the rules are isn't it and the rules are kind of very need to be really clear they can't be thinking why does it say that what's that doing there and so if you mm. if you design for that those sort of that sort of brain then as you say you're covering everyone but the normal thing is interesting because although autism isn't a mental illness it is analogous to the mental health experience you're in a world where you perhaps think differently you perhaps have different reactions to things uh, and a lot of people want to try and find distinct best practice don't they all the time this uh, yeah i mean that sounds to me like a form of let's find what's normal and let's focus on that and then we don't need to do it but that seems to me like a way to not be exceptional you know your work will ultimately end yeah. up not being exceptional because it will just be on this baseline of best practice similar to yeah. normality what what the hell is normality I can't imagine it living in a sort of world where everyone is normal. <laughs> everyone is kind of like it's almost like that THX one one three eight thing we were talking about, where everyone is just flatlined, yeah. you know, in, in that kind of state where there's no there's no edges, there's no exception. But actually, wouldn't it be better in some environments if we were more straightforward and we weren't sort of going, oh, it's fine, you know? Uh, well, I think and, you know, I think that's. The, the difference there is when I, you know, I edit. I work with other authors. We were just talking to about this before we started recording, and I edit other other authors' work. And um, you you try and find a line between saying something, trying to improve the work, and saying, "Well, that's I see what you've tried to do there, but if you did it this way or if you did it that way, then what you're trying to do would be you'd be closer to achieving that." And you know, I try not to say, this is a disaster, this is awful. Really because you're bringing something into an emotional realm that should just be more black and white and more focused on improving a piece of writing. Where as soon mm. as you say, this is rubbish, or you can't write, mate, then you're suddenly, you're attacking the person rather than the work. So yeah, that the, the, the problem with what you just said about the autism approach to someone... Uh, to feedback at work is that it does sound like if I if you came to me with a project mm -hmm. and I was autistic and you said what do you think of this and I said well it deserves to go in the bin it's this is a complete nightmare I don't know what you're thinking about this is just nonsense then it's very difficult for you to not take that personally isn't it but there are there are levels in between aren't there I think you could yeah I mean yeah. Matthew was explaining that sometimes even if you weren't making it personal you could say oh I don't think it's good enough standard, but be very straightforward with the answer. Because another thing I do, and, and you know, we have in common, is I do a lot of training for copywriters. And, mm. and there's a lot of time that our language, written language does that as well when you're writing for websites or emails. You know, we, we beat around the bush. We use overly formal language. We don't, yeah. you know, we waffle, we bullshit. Yeah. Um, when actually straight, plain talking would benefit everyone. 
you know yeah save I mean, that's, that's everywhere isn't it that is everywhere you go like, but well, the thing that really annoys me on a train when someone says hot and cold beverages and stuff like this <laughs> no, no, no it's just drinks mate it's <laughs> it's just and it's kind of like you're you're sort of someone yeah. putting on a phone voice isn't it someone trying to impress you yeah. by the fact that they know what the word beverage means like 95 percent of the world does so who are they impressing exactly it's really odd isn't it yeah. plain talking i think you know poetic content of language has its place definitely in fiction oh, sure. in, in poetry and mm. drama in art you know as soon as you start mm. saying right you know we want everything in note form please we want to understand everything we, we don't want any mm. <laughs> any ambiguity or poetic content or depth or or anything we just want say what you mean exactly then you're sort of yeah. wiping art off the face of the earth a bit, aren't you? You're kind of because it's often this oh, sure, ambiguity, yeah. it's beautiful in art. And I'd love to hear more about how autistic people look at art and look at look at ambiguous. Uh, That's really interesting. Yeah, you know, things like that. Okay, so please do get in touch um, at at em cripples on Twitter. E m e s m for mouse, uh, not n not n for nail. <laughs> Just to clarify that. No. Uh, yeah. um, contact. <laughs> Not that we're saying you're a mouse. But no, yeah. but <laughs> it doesn't stand for mouse either. It's just no. to dif- differentiate between N for nail. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> the contact at emotional cripples is the email. Yeah. Uh, um, is the email. Yeah. I sound like my dad. I just there. To, it's like, yeah. just send the senders a message on the email <laughs> on and the, the Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. So, so that's email. Um, you can also get, find our Facebook group. I can't be bothered to tell you the the address for that, but just search on Facebook. Um, yeah. it's quite, join us, join us. It's quite long the, the address, so just find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and just find yeah, please get in touch with me. And we won't. Mm. Yeah, we won't. We won't. Um, we're not going to uh, expose what people <clears> say and put names against them. We'll retain anonymity. Yeah, we're going to do but, a Christmas um, special soon, so I think probably in the Christmas special we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully get some feedback and we'll be able to kind of comment on the feedback. And um, and yeah. but next week, uh, next week's episode is uh, therapy. We're going to talk about therapy, and we're going to talk to Paul Rose, who's a TV writer um, and who has trained as a therapist. He went through some training, and so it'll be interesting to see it from the other side, where um, you know he has some some things to share about the process and some disillusionments about um, about the whole, mm. uh, what to expect, you know, what to expect if you're mm. thinking of getting some talking therapy and what kind of things. And also, also good advice for what to look for in a, in a therapist. And, you know, yeah, one of the things that he talks about, which um, you'll, you'll hear is, is how, you know, if you have a bad experience with a therapist, which I've had and I'm sure others have, that doesn't, that shouldn't turn you off therapy. There are, you know, there's there's a way to find the best, a better therapist, and or the right therapist for you. So he talks about some good tips on how to identify that and make sure that you get the best therapy for you. Yeah, and there is some sort of fascinating, uh, juice, juicy bits on on the uh-huh. just the politics of trying to train as a therapist. That's quite something that I I'd never heard before. I just assumed that take a course and you're a therapist, but there's a lot of uh, it's extremely complex and emotionally quite challenging just to become a therapist um, and, you know, yourself, you know, sort of let alone actually going into therapy. Uh, please do get in touch and we'll see you next time. Emotional Cripples was devised and performed by Andrew Lowe and Tim Tucker. 
Designed by Stuart Beish. All music by The Weathermonger. If you have been affected by the issues in this podcast, uh, you can call the Samaritans in the UK on 116-123. Or if you're outside the UK and Ireland, check out befrienders.org. You'll find a link in the show notes.